0: Hello, and welcome to the Picture Books to Gang's interview series, Picture Books and Justice. Picture Books and Justice is a series where we interview a creator from the picture book world and get to know them a little better. To us, there's nothing better than a beautiful, spellbinding picture book that has social justice themes. PB&J is your afternoon book snack, so let's dig in. Hello, I'm Kelly, and today we're joined by Deborah Hopkinson, author of the new picture book, Butterflies Belong Here as well as editor Melissa Manlove, who also worked on the book. Deborah is the author of over 50 different picture books for children of all ages, and also wrote another favorite picture book of ours from last year, Carter Reads the Newspaper, which won one of our Best of 2019 awards last year. Melissa is a senior editor at Chronicle Books and worked on Butterflies Belong Here and many other wonderful picture books. Welcome, Melissa and Deborah. I'm so happy to chat with you. Thank, Thank you. you. It's great to be here. So before we get started, I have to have a confession. I'm so thrilled to be chatting with you both today about this book because I'm a massive monarch butterfly enthusiast. And through the summer, if you follow Inclusive Story Time and you watch our stories, for our listeners, you know that uh, I raise monarch uh, caterpillars all summer long. We tag them. We do the whole thing. And uh, my last two in the migratory generation right now um, are chomping away, ready to go into their chrysalis. So... I'm so happy to be chatting with you both. That is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps um, each of you can give our listeners a little bit of background about yourselves so they can get to know you and how you got into children's literature. And we'll start with Debra.
1: Um, well, um, I always wanted to be a writer. I went to college and I started working in fundraising for higher education. And I did a lot of writing for my job. And so, like many people, I thought, well, if I don't have time to write the great American novel, I'll write a picture book. (laughs) And that didn't quite work out right away. I sold some magazine stories, and then eventually I did sell my first picture book. But I have only been a full-time writer since 2014, so I continued my career in, in advancement at colleges and universities for all those years in between. Excellent.
2: How about you, Melissa? Well, I did not always want to be an editor. I I mean, like a lot of people, I didn't know what an editor did for a long time. I got a degree in classics, which means I can translate Latin and ancient Greek. (laughs) Yes, very, very useful skills. (laughs) But uh, while I was in college, I started working at a children's bookstore and found I loved it. I I loved recommending books to people. I loved sharing books with people. And so I did that for many years, and then I was getting towards the end of my twenties and started thinking, "Man, it would be great if I could find a job that had health care or a retirement plan." And so then
0: I—they—they are, yeah.
2: (laughs) Um, And so then I started thinking about publishing, and I interned at Chronicle, and they hired me. It was—it was a lot of hard work, but it was also a ton of luck, and I'm very grateful. Wonderful.
0: Well, I'm hoping that you can give us a little bit more background on on what an editor does in, in a day, with. Sure, our next question, which is what does a typical day look like for each of you? So we'll start with you, Melissa.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> the truth is that the average day for an editor is attending a lot of meetings and answering a lot of emails. And by the end of many days, I sort of feel like throttling my computer. But interspersed lightly in all of that work is um, is editing books and that's the magic part of it. That's the, the part that makes it all worthwhile. I mean, don't get me wrong, the, the meetings are mostly with my colleagues and they're great people. I love the people at Chronicle. It's it's a, such a great organization and full of smart, kind, creative people. And the authors and illustrators I work with too. It's honestly an honor and a delight. But uh, yeah, if you don't have any stamina for email, uh, you're not going to make a great <laughs> editor.
0: Fair enough. Uh, and uh, what does now that, now that you are full-time um, writing books, what does a typical day look like for you?
1: Well, my, uh, as uh, everyone has, uh, my life has changed since the pandemic. And m- m- I used to have sort of a regular annual calendar since I've been a full-time author, which would be a lot of travel in the spring to author visits in schools across the country. And then I would have very intense times where I just write. Um, so I, my dining room is my office. I've been looking at everyone from their home offices and I think that I definitely need to improve <laughs> improve my Zoom office. So basically I work seven days a week and I do picture books and longer books. And I, I used to go to the gym, but since I can't do that so much anymore, um, in the summertime, I do get to go out and garden. So when I get really stuck, I go out and deadhead. <laughs> and, um, and my garden looks really gorgeous this year. I, like three years ago, I think I planted milkweed. I still haven't seen a monarch here in Oregon. But today I did see a red admiral for the first time this Ooh. year. So that was fun. And um, I've tried to, to add more plants to make a monarch way station or at least a garden. A pollinator garden is still a very important um, addition for
0: sure. I'm very fortunate because I'm in Ontario that uh, in the summertime we get thousands of monarchs. And when the migration begins, which we'll talk a little, a little bit more about when we talk about the book, but we actually will have trees completely filled um, as they stop uh-huh. overnight to go over Lake Ontario. So we can oh. see in one tree, thousands of monarchs, just the end of my street. It's, it's How glorious. Amazing. Thing. Yeah, there's nothing like it in the entire world. So let's, on that note, talk a little bit more about the book. Butterflies belong here. I'm wondering why you decided to write the book. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, Deborah.
1: Melissa and I had done a book called Follow the Moon Home about sea turtles. My I have two children. My son, when he was in middle school had gone to Costa Rica to work with sea turtles. And I found, as I shared that book with children all over the country, they were so enthusiastic. And that was co-written with Philippe Cousteau, who's an environmental activist. I also thought that since, as you just said, you know, monarchs are have a wide range, that I wanted to find a book that was about environmental activism and community projects that would apply to more schools. Kids in North Carolina and South Carolina Florida maybe know about sea turtles but in the middle of the (laughs) the country they love kids love sea turtles but they don't get a chance to see them so that was sort of the brainstorm but I think it was really some of the letters that I would have children write after I presented the book they would write because I'm a fundraising they would write a letter of support to local business and ask for money for sea turtles so that gave me the idea of asking Melissa to consider another topic that was like that with the theme of environmental activism. Love that.
0: Well, another dimension of activism I think is you you really harness the metaphor of migration because the character that's in the book you imply is is an immigrant who feels that they don't belong and that's it's such an app metaphor to use that. You know, I've spoken to many people who are from uh, Mexico and South America, and they strongly identify with the monarch butterfly because of the migration pattern and things like that. So I, I, you know, when I first, in the first few pages of the book, I immediately identified that metaphor. And I thought that was really powerful that you use that as well. And then, you know, the fundraising aspect when when the character presents her whole budget I was like yeah <laughs> it's amazing I I it, it was very thoughtful so I really appreciated that and maybe Melissa and you know because I do you know this is the second in in the series but maybe Melissa you can speak a bit about how you collectively decided on the format which I think is really unique that it switches from this narrative story onto these sort of pure non-fiction
2: portions of the story well that Honestly, that was entirely Deborah. Oh, wonderful. It came to me that way. (laughs) Yes. And and it does make the book long. In fact, um, I think this is a longer book than Follow the Moon Home. But what we've found at Chronicle is that both books, well, I mean, this one's just coming out, but Follow the Moon Home has done really well for us. And part of that is its length, because its length gives us that chance that you were just talking about to really give kids a blueprint for the next steps they need to take if they want to be activists. And it gives teachers a blueprint, blueprint for the lesson that they're going to teach about community activism. And it's just, it's magic. What, what Deborah does in these books because suddenly kids realize that they can make change right now. You know, they're, they're in third grade, fourth grade, they can start. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, Kids that age, they know that there are problems in the world, but the problems in the world become infinitely less scary when you feel like you can do something.
0: hundred percent. I couldn't possibly agree more. And I think the power of raising monarchs and planting pollinator gardens is that it's inexpensive. It's accessible. Raising monarchs, like you can find milkweed in a field if you live in an area um, and and it's completely free and you're raising this little creature and setting it free who can go out and lay more eggs and increase the population of an endangered species. Like That's like Absolutely. something so powerful that children can do and, and it's accessible
1: mm-hmm.
0: as long as you and live in the right
2: area. If you're making a garden that benefits monarchs, then you're making a garden that benefits lots of pollinators. And you are yep. making a real difference to the environment. And not just to the environment, you're making a difference to the human species because, man, we need those pollinators.
0: We are going to run out of
2: food if we keep killing Reason. them.
0: And all types of butterflies, and and there's so many different. I've I've had hummingbird moths in my garden. Hummingbirds are Ah, pollinators, in fact, as well. Yes. So you know there there's there's so many different pollinators, and that's we need pollinators to grow our food. (laughs) Um, We need places for honeybees to uh, to live and thrive and pollinate and all those things. So it's such a multifaceted and important act. Oh yes,
2: of course. (laughs) Did you know Um, that my name means honeybee in Greek? And Deborah's name means honeybee in in Hebrew.
0: (laughs) What a special connection you two have! (laughs) That's so wonderful. (laughs) I love that. So, what are and we'll we'll go back to you, Deborah. Um, What do you hope that kids and family and teachers are really taking away from this book? And we've kind of touched on this, but maybe you can expand. Well, I
1: think um, Melissa said it well that you know, just as Melissa didn't know what an editor did, um, in my when I was Going to college, um, and I have a degree in Asian studies, so I studied 13th century Japanese Buddhism for a while. Um, I didn't know what fundraising was, and yet, if you look around, a lot of the whole nonprofit sector, kids raise money for s- school trips or whatever. And and as I as I talked about follow the moon home with kids in schools, I asked them if they had ever done something for their community, and mm-hmm. most you know children have or teens they've done they've raised money. For their church, or they've done a canned food drive, and yet when you look around, that whole world that I was part of as a career isn't something that you go to go to school and know that it even exists as a career. So again, bringing sort of the tools of activism and the practicality, along with that idea of being inspired to to do something, was really what I what I hoped. To do with this book, and I and I think of it as a hybrid. A lot of people, um, a lot of people, young writers get confused of whether it's historical fiction or fiction. This is really a sort of a hybrid car. It's like a car that will run on gas, which I think of as sort of fiction, and then on electricity is nonfiction. Um, but it has very clear, it has very clear parts of it. So we think of it as informational fiction. That's
0: a, that is a wonderful way to put it, actually, and that actually describes it quite well. I was having trouble <laughs> kind of categorizing it, I, 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 and I was thinking of it as a hybrid, this nonfiction paired with narrative, but that hybrid fiction, a new word for me. I and then we that. also did
1: try to add resources in the back so that um, yes. if, if children are in school or even in home or a homeschooling group or a pod, whatever might happen over the next few years. Um, with mm-hmm. education, that there are things you can you can take away and, and adapt to whatever situation families are in.
0: My son is four years old and obviously very interested in monarchs. So he had a capacity to sit and listen to this rather long book. One of our other hosts, Alessandra, whose daughter is exactly the same age, it was a bit too long for her. So she read the book, just the narrative parts and kind of skipped over the nonfiction part. And that, But that was a I thought that was nice because it adapts to the age and it allows the book to grow Absolutely. with the child as well. Because it was cut and dry, it wasn't so interspersed. It, it was really you turn the page and you realize this was kind of your nonfiction page, so you could kind of go, okay, we'll go to the next page and go back into the narrative. So, and that's all,
1: Melissa and, and the wonderful illustrator, Melissa. It's not nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> well enjoyed that part it it uh, I
0: think it's helpful and I think you know on your point of of homeschooling and pods and things like that that it also gives an opportunity to move through the book day by day as you explore the different concepts um, you know, if you're doing a unit on insects or something like that, or pollination or community activism, there's actually a lot of different ways that you could use it in a homeschool curriculum or, or in a traditional classroom. So, you know, that's, that's a huge benefit right now because we're all exploring new ways to educate our children. I know I am. So, you know, that's, that's a big deal right now. So, Melissa, sort of the same question. What's your hope for what kids, family, and teachers are really taking away from this book?
2: I I think it's empowerment. I think it's tremendously hopeful to to see that the change you want is right in front of you and you can put your hands on it. I love that. (laughs) That's beautiful.
0: Thank you. I'll ask Melissa first. What's your biggest advice to parents and caregivers, educators on how to build an inclusive book collection? Chronicle actually has... Incredible offerings in terms of having a diverse range of of characters and authors and all of those things. So you know, maybe you could actually speak to what you're looking for when you're editing, to to help meet those those goals.
2: Oh gosh, I mean, we're we're even ramping up our goals from what they have been, and and we're trying hard to to make our list even more diverse in especially in terms of creators. I think I mean, my biggest advice for for parents and caregivers and educators is especially if you are white I think I think parents and caregivers and teachers who are people of color don't really need this advice no um, but um so the to the people like me who are white I think it's it's very easy to buy a lot of a lot of books by white creators without even realizing that you have and so my my best advice is really to like give yourself a time period like six months or maybe even a year in which you don't buy anything if it isn't at least partially by a creator of color because that will do an amazing job of, of not just diversifying the the books on your shelf but diversifying the way you think about books and and the narratives that are in your head And Mm -hmm. after that, it will become so much easier to not look at authors and then come home with a pile of books and look at them and think, oh, hey, these are, you know, a quarter, a half people of color. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And that's the change you've affected in yourself. That's the kind of change we all need to work on some because white default is so easy. And... And our children deserve better. They are growing up in a world that is widely diverse and is only getting more diverse. And that's a wonderful thing for them. It is a richer world because of it. And we can prepare them for it in this way.
0: I love that so much. Another way, just to speak on your point, I love, I love the idea of giving yourself six months where you really pay attention to the creators of, of the books and only buy book from BIPOC creators or, or queer creators or things like that. That's, that's wonderful advice. And something else just to add on to that is paying attention when you're at the library. If you allow Absolutely. your child to pick out as many books as they want, but half of them need to be from people that don't look like them you would be perfect so surprised at what ends up coming home from the library and how enriching it truly is to hear those voices that are different than yours it's it's incredibly powerful so and, and that's essentially how my account inclusive story time was born so, so that's where we are but um so same question deborah what's your biggest like you have published some incredible historical fiction books that are. Widely diverse, so I'm really wondering what your biggest piece of advice to parents, caregivers, and edu- educators are on building an inclusive book collection.
1: Well, I think Melissa, what Melissa said is is great, and I and I think it's important to look at you know just some people, their names are known, you know mm-hmm. we know Mo Willems, but to really to really look at the author and illustrator and then get to know their body of work. And I think that's very helpful. Then you start to recognize, I was very fortunate in my first picture book to be um, part of James Ransom. And uh, we've, we did three books together so far. Watching his body of work and then buying his books for my four-year-old grandson and my kids. Then it start, you start to really grow a community and that's very mm-hmm. helpful. Uh, I lived in Hawaii for 20 years, and my daughter is a middle school teacher in Vermont and is in charge of the, um, which is, they have many challenges there because Burlington, Vermont is, is quite, as is a lot of parts of, of the country, quite white. And, but her early experience, and I felt this way also just being in schools, um, her early experiences of uh, elementary school and being the only Caucasian child in our Brownie troop and just being on the volleyball team with other kids, she comes back to that again and again as the foundation of, of the, her perspective on the world. And so I think it's important. And I, what I love about the illustrations and butterflies belong here is just how, how great and diverse the, the classroom is. Um, and that's what I miss most about going on school visits because really in many parts of the country that you wouldn't necessarily expect that I would present to auditoriums full of just wonderful kids from all over, 14 languages spoken in the school. And we forget how important those n- nurturing communities are.
0: No, I, the, the illustrations of the class or, are- or, wonderfully inclusive and diverse and i loved that there was a black male teacher which is just (laughs) something we need to see so much more of especially in picture books and uh and and in life it did not go unnoticed for me turning those pages because i own a whole bunch of books about monarch butterflies and almost none of them have people who aren't white in them so it was it stood out immediately to me that those choices were made and i think it's so important that uh, when any child looks at a nonfiction book that they can still see themselves reflected back in some way because that's what helps make it more accessible
1: and, and i must children. say um i don't have a, i mean i'm the child of second generation um mm-hmm. but my our son is adopted from russia so even though the character in the book is quite different than Dimitri's experience, that feeling I sort of drew on, we got him when he was six. So that feeling of coming in and not and not belonging was something that we experienced in a different way in our family.
0: In a different way, but still, no, that's, that's, that's valid. He would, he would have spoken a different language. I'm assuming. There's (laughs) a lot of, that's a lot of challenges to go through as a six year old in school. So that feeling of fitting in and, and the, incredibly caring and empathetic librarian in the story um really touched my heart I I there were there's actually so it's such a big book (laughs) there's so many elements that really touched me that, that I think a lot of people will connect with different parts of the story in different ways there's so many places to touch on on those things and draw people
1: in so and you know so when you. i wrote this i had no idea that my school visit on march 3rd might in washington state might have been the last one that i would ever do so it really <laughs> wasn't it, it drew from you know going into schools all over the country and seeing librarians and seeing the kinds of things they would do for their their students it's it's kind of sad <laughs> it's kind of sad i know
0: <laughs> yeah. it's tough this year it's really tough this year. And mm-hmm. um, Melissa, is there anything else that in the process of editing this book that was really special to you that you would like to
2: share with us? Oh gosh. I don't know. I know, I got mean, you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I um I did most of the editing for this book in the public library in Pacific Grove, which you may not know is an overwintering ground for monarchs. Oh. Um, yes. That's wonderful. <laughs> it's it, it wasn't wasn't deliberate I just needed uh some time away from the office to to really focus on some books and so I went down the coast and and took Deborah's manuscript with me and found myself learning everything about monarchs right there it's it was wonderful I mean uh, it's nonfiction is never quite as easy to put together as fiction generally speaking um mm-hmm. uh, but on on the whole, this is a really easy book to put together because it, it came to me knowing what it was, and, and Deborah's vision for it absolutely made sense to me. And we, we tweaked it a little bit, and we sent it off to the illustrator. And, uh, and Melo is such a pro, and she's so lovely. I haven't yet gotten to meet her in person, but I would love to. She's, she's, she's overseas, though, person. right? Yeah. She is. She lives in the Shetland Islands. Yes. Yes. We tried to get Which, it
0: on. It was a bit of a challenge, just too bad because I would have loved to have spe- spoken with her, but um, yeah. But that's okay. Not a problem. So as an editor, and this is just out of my pure curiosity, what is the process like with working with the illustrator after the manuscript is done? Is there any back and forth at that point? Or? Oh,
2: absolutely. The illustrator mm-hmm. will send us sketches. Mm-hmm. And, and the designer and I will look at them together and, and talk to each other about what the, what the sketches are accomplishing and uh, how they're serving the text and where we might make suggestions. Um, but yeah. editing and, and designing or art direction, they're, they have to be very respectful jobs to do because in the end the the author and the illustrators are the names that go on the cover of the book and they have to take responsibility Mm -hmm. for everything inside so we we try to make it a really collaborative process at chronicle and and i'm happy to be argued with you know that's i think (laughs) being argued with is an important part of the the creative process like i suggest an idea and i love it when an author is like actually no i think that's not what this is that's not the direction this is trying to go. I would have gone this direction. And that's good to hear. That means that I can, I can better understand what their vision for their book is. And I can tailor my feedback to that vision.
0: That's wonderful. It's not every day you find somebody that's happy to be argued with. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, there are some arguments that I'm. It's, it does. It does feel like there are a lot of arguments going on in the world right now. That if I had to have them in person, I would end up just smacking a person. But yeah, me too. When it comes when it comes to books and and the creative work of making a book, there one of the wonderful things about it is that you can have two people with absolutely diametrically opposed points of view about it and both of them are right nobody is wrong yeah. both of those mm-hmm. points of view are absolutely valid and and so it really encourages everyone involved to to remember that when you you meet a point of view that isn't the same as yours to not think that's wrong but instead think that's interesting i love that that's wonderful
0: And is there anything else you'd like to add before I carry on to the the final question, Deborah?
1: No, just that um, what I love about the illustrations, again, is how warm they are and how she's uh, the main character who does not have a name. And I didn't make it very specific at all. It was more just that was up to Melissa and, and Melo to sort of give her, even the gender wasn't specified in the manuscript. So it could have been anyone. It could have been anyone that's lovely. Um, but yeah, but it's sort of like having a baby and they come out and once they're out, that's just the way they're supposed to be. And so I love the way that it's come out. And, and I love that someday when people are back in school full time, you know, there's lots of ideas here for people to take and run with, I hope.
0: We're excited about it. Mm-hmm. We're taking it and running with it in our mm-hmm. homeschool remote learning journey this coming year. And I know a lot of other people that are going to be excited to read it as well. So our wrap-up question tends to be some version of what are the best books that you've read this year that aren't your own?
2: All right. Um, well, it, it has been a weird year for me, reading-wise. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have been reading a lot of uh, books for grownups about um, race and anti racism. Mm-hmm. But for, for parents who are, who are looking to build an inclusive book collection, I, I would suggest they look at uh, We Are Water Protectors by Carol Lindstrom. Love uh, that book. Yeah. Lift by Min Lee. And um, Magnificent Homespun Brown by Samra Cole oh, Doyen. Beautiful, beautiful choices. Um, and what
0: do you look for in a great picture book? And, and asking an editor, that's a big question, but. It, it is a
2: big question. <laughs> it's because I've, I've published a lot of different kinds of books. I've published mm-hmm. fiction and nonfiction and a lot of different uh, types of voices and types, you know, like books that appeal to different moments in a kid's life. So I guess it has to be kind of a big answer. I, I look for books that that honor the emotional lives of children and honor the intellectual lives of children and honor the imaginative lives of children. I look for, for creators, authors and illustrators who see children as whole people already, even if they aren't ready to be adults, they are not half formed. They are themselves and they need books that honor that.
0: I, Love that answer. That's beautiful. You're going to make me cry. That's wonderful. Thank you for that, Deborah. So um, some, some great books you've read this year that aren't your own. And what do you look for in a picture book?
1: Well, um, I've been reading to on to my grandson, Oliver, who lives in Vermont, and I'm in Oregon. And we've been reading some of the, the, the new and the older ready to read. So they're not exactly picture books, mm-hmm. but that works really well. And he's just four. So we've been reading the King and Kayla series, which
2: um, is narrated by a dog, which is really fun. Um, I love that series. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I love the way it actually, it builds a mystery where the the clues are there for the reader to put together too. That's hard in a mystery and it's super hard in an early reader.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then it's actually not, it's not a picture book, but I reviewed for a book page, historical fiction novel in verse called All He Knew by Helen Frost. Have you read it? The reason that it that it resonated with me, it's based on a family story where an uncle of her husband's was actually institutionalized um, as a child because he had lost his hearing, I think, through an illness. And so much of it takes place from the boy's point of view um, in the 1940s uh, within a, um, within an institution where that included Down syndrome, children, kids with cystic fibrosis. The other character in the story is also based on a real person who was a conscientious objector. So many of the themes, how do we act in society? How do we follow our values? And then that idea of being in this confined space. And I'm sure she wrote this long before the pandemic it was a it's a really beautiful um book for older readers
0: lovely i love that and you know i think it's interesting reading books right now and understanding it in a even rereading books right now and understanding it in the context of the pandemic has really changed the way we think about a lot of things and also made us think about. It. it's made me nostalgic and and really miss things from six months ago <laughs> so, <laughs> a lot a lot of these picture books it's like oh friends getting together
1: Whoa, we can't do that anymore I know. yeah so that, that slight disconnect when you see people on tv and
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> um i think i think the uh the years ahead in in publishing and especially in tv since filming is a lot harder is is about to be quite different the way that we uh we, we tell stories, so I'm I'm kind of excited for it in some ways because there's between the pandemic and the uprisings, I think there's this massive shift in shift in the publishing industry as a whole that's about to happen, and I think it's going to benefit everyone. I hope. <laughs> that's my hope. So, yeah.
2: Fingers crossed. Um,
1: fingers crossed.
0: We need it's, that big change. It's so hard to know.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. God, it's it's hard to even look a week ahead sometimes.
0: Well, and it's part of why, um, you know, I wanted to ask that question about building an inclusive bookshelf and talking about the publishing industry as a whole, because I think think people underestimate the power of their purchasing dollar in a capitalist society. Like it really does matter that you're physically purchasing books by BIPOC authors because that encourages the publishers to publish more of them.
2: It goes all the way up uh, a kind of river of books because it encourages booksellers to stock more books like that. And, mm-hmm. that. and that translates to wholesalers who stock more of the book. And that mm-hmm. goes further onto on publishers. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize how, how reactive publishing sort of has to be because we, we make a book, but then it sits in our warehouse until somebody, whether it's a wholesaler or a bookseller or a librarian, decides to spend money on it in order to Mm -hmm. put it someplace where normal people can find it so we yeah i need you guys out there requesting it for your library system to
0: purchase it purchasing it yourself paying attention when you purchase gifts for other Um, children and and humans in your life and and making sure that you're making really thoughtful choices and not just picking that classic up off the shelf every single time. Those are things that really do shift the dial and and allow, again, just to, to bring us all full circle, beautiful, beautiful books like Butterflies Belong Here to be published as well, because they have these themes of social justice and things like that, and they empower children. And, you know, we need new books we need fresh perspectives and i yeah. think this is a book that really does give that so and
2: truthfully thanks. there there are books coming out that uh, <laughs> they're new but they they are new classics start start looking for these books by by people of color and you will find things that absolutely hit you in the heart they are they are ones There's, for everyone
0: my review pile has some incredible books that are releasing this fall. I'm blown away by some of the amazing things that are coming out this year. So I think at that, we're going to wrap things up. So thank you so much for having us.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So lovely talking to both of you. So thank you for joining in for some picture books and justice with author Deborah Hopkinson and editor Melissa Manlove and myself, Kelly. Here on the Picture Books to Gang podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Picture Books to Gang and remember to subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to drop us a note and let us know what are you reading.